After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. All right, everybody. This is the best news to ever happen in the entire history of, of everything. Individual Meat Eater episodes from our new season, I'm talking the TV show, not this here podcast, are available for instant streaming and HD downloads right after they air on TV. So you get a new episode every Thursday. There's no embargo, you know, where you got to wait a long time to get a new episode. It comes out on TV, you go to your computer, you watch it on your computer, no problem. Head over to meateater.vhx.tv to instantly watch the new season of Meat Eater in HD. Use the promo code MEATEATERPODCAST at checkout and you get five bucks off any of our previous volumes. Go check it out. Prime viewing for you. All right, thanks for joining the Meat Eater Podcast. We're recording in a very tinny-sounding hotel room in Bethel, Alaska. Bethel, Alaska is in western Alaska. Specifically, it's where the Kuskokwim River flows out into the Bering Sea. Just north of here, you got the Yukon River, flown out into the Bering Sea. And so the delta that these two things form, people say it's the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta or YK Delta. It's way bigger than the delta made by the Mississippi flowing into the Gulf of Mexico. It's actually, um, the YK Delta is bigger than the state of Louisiana. It's a huge tundra delta. And this area is predominantly, um, there's 6,000 people in Bethel. It's predominantly native Alaskan. Uh, Yupik Eskimo. We're coming from an island, Nunavak Island, which is 40 miles out into the Bering Sea. The island's about 40 miles by 60 miles, approximately. And that's Chupik Eskimo out there. Um, and the only Chupiks, like Chupiks just live on Nunavak. There's 200 people on Nunavak Island in a town called Makoriuk. And that's where we're coming from. We're just out there hunting muskox. But speaking of how big the YK Delta is, um, we're here with Mike Washleski. You've never done one of these, Mike, have you? Well, we kind of tried to do one in Anchorage. Sorry, but you didn't say anything. I didn't have a hot mic, yeah. Yeah, Mike's done them, but Mike has done them, but his mic wasn't on. So kind of no. And we were asking Mike, Mike's from Texas, and this morning we were asking Mike if, why is Texas so into the thing about how their state's so big but it's not the biggest state. It's like Texas fits inside of Alaska, but Texans are always like, yeah, it's a big thing. But it's like no other second place thing acts like it's the first place thing. 
I think it's because uh, it was its own country, so that's the claim to fame, I guess, to a certain degree. It's the biggest in the lower 48, I guess you could just say that. Yeah, but it's... It's, it's probably it's, carrying it's, over from when, before... It, from Ala- when it was the biggest. From before Alaska right. became a state, and then it was. Okay, what's a sports team that used to be good, and now they suck? <laughs> well, it's like all... Like the, the Packers? The, the Packers ever used to win? Did they always win the Super Bowls in the old days? I feel like they did. They've been great. Okay, so people, the Packers don't run around being like, yeah, number one, champion, right? Yeah. It's like you used to be, you're not now. Now you're just like a team. Yeah. No, Texas. You guys are just like a state. Texas has a lot of pride. Yeah. I mean, people get tattooed. I mean, how many tattoos do you see of like, you know, Massachusetts on somebody's shoulder? Well, here that you tattoo 907 on your arm. Is that the area code? It's a single area code state. Like Wyoming, Montana. So what happens whenever there's another area code and, and you happen to have that tattoo? Uh, you do slash, then you're uh, you're the next the next three numbers. <laughs> it's like a you probably uh, remember. Also, so so Mike's a, a camera operator and still photographer, um, and works with us uh, on the show media. We're actually coming from filming a, an episode of Media, and we're also joined by Giannis Butelis, who who you know is always hanging around, is always kind of murmuring in the background there. And then Corey, how do you say your last name? Kutchmark or Kutchmark or Kazmarek. So Which do you like? Depending on the day, it's like if you want to tell someone how it sounds, it's Kazmarek. If you look at it. Yeah. Corey comes from a big state, 646 miles wide, Montana. And um, what's super interesting about Corey, tell him what you used to do before you started being a cameraman. I'll tell him. Corey was the dude... <laughs> Corey's one of the dudes that jumps out of a helicopter with a snowboard and goes down a big, huge mountain that looks like you're going to die. Talk about that just for a quick second. Oh, I've been snowboarding for like 25 years, and uh, I think my favorite kind of snowboarding is big mountain snowboarding. So I used to compete. Big mountain? Big mountain. Big, big mountain. Sorry, I got a little bit of a cold. But uh, yeah, I was competed at a professional level, traveled around, big mountain snowboarding. I one time asked Corey, we were hunting, and I asked Corey if there's ever been a mountain that other dudes would go down on their snowboard and he wouldn't go down. And at the time, he said no. you never seen a dude go down a hill, and then you said, there's no way I'm going down that hill. I could go down the hill. There might be routes where right now my age, I'm only 39, but... That's old for a snowboarder. To be jumping off 50, 60-foot cliffs, yeah. You know, K2 or... Uh, I don't know, Everest would be one that I would question, but if it's at low elevation, I could probably make it down okay. You know, it's the elevation that'll get you on those mountains. What do you mean? I mean, just the, the air. The air, yeah. You could just be snowboarding and just pass out, you know. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Hey, what, what is it? What's the death zone? We- 20, what is it? 25,000, I think. So do you snowboard down hills where... I, don't want, I, I do want to talk about snowboarding for a minute. Um, do you snowboard down hills where if you fell, you would die? Yes. Yeah, I do that a lot. So you have to keep upright. Yeah, you don't want to fall. Or usually it's, you're exposed, so if it's steep enough where you can like fall and you start getting momentum, it's the ragdolling effect you, when you're going... Pass over heels all the way down the mountain, you know, and then that's when you 
probably die of trauma or go over a cliff or, you know, so you don't want to... Smack into a tree. Or trees. Did that happen a lot? I mean, did you see that? Like, when it happens all the time. Well, I mean, like during a competition. Oh, during competitions. He can't get to the bottom of the hill for all the carcasses laying everywhere. This <laughs> guy actually well, snowboarding I mean, there, is deaths, there are some deaths in that competitive scene. You know, it's just unfortunate, but you are risked. You know, it's a time of day you wake up. It's competition day. You're at the top, and you're going to push your limits. And some people try to go a little past their limits, or some people just mess up off takeoffs and maybe land into the, an oncoming rock or cliff because you're, you're looking at it from the bottom with your binoculars, this mountain face. And then you have to go up top and kind of turn that whole, you know, vision 180 in your head because you're going to go down the mountain now. So you're flipping the image, and you have to remember, like, this rock, this tree, this four-foot tree, you know, three feet to the left, i got to take off there, and it's going to be a ten-foot wide landing, and then i got to take a hard left here because this is a, you know, there's either trees or another 40-foot cliff. So you got to, like, it's a little puzzle you put into your head, and then, you know, you're at the finish line, hopefully. Safe. And how fast are you going? I mean, it's depending on uh, your route, route finding. You are know. you judged on speed? Uh, it's not really speed. You know, the, the judging criteria was line choice, which the line you pick going down the mountain, control, your fluidity, your aggressiveness, and um, style. Sounds like a lot of like pretty arbitrary stuff. It's like figure skating. Yeah. You know, best But man. what speed would you hit? Oh, you can hit easy, you know, you point, point a shoot for a long period of time, you can be going 50 easily, So do you real go, quick. Do you go on these mountains, like, sight unseen? Like, you're like, here's your mountain, figure out the map, and then you've never actually done the route. You just yeah, true. That's at the high level. The low level, they'll let you go onto the face, ski around, look off things. You know, that's called an inspection day. You get one run through, and you get to find your route, and that, you know... It's pretty explosive skiing when you when you can go see where you're going. So these guys are just flying down the mountain. But when you have a, there's actually a contest. The world tour is in Haines, Alaska this week. And uh, would you normally be at that right now? I followed that tour. I used to snowboard on that tour for uh, two years, and uh, I've worked it probably like four years. Worked it as a as cameraman. a cameraman. Yeah. Yep. So. Yeah, you just, it's just the adrenaline thing. It's like hunting, like, probably sheep or something, I would say. Yeah. I hunt, but I'm not like these guys, you know, not like Steve, those who are listening. But, you know, you get that same adrenaline rush, probably. Chasing sheep, walking these cliff edges, trying to find the sheep, probably, and you don't want to fall here with your big pack on. Yeah. So if you do, you're going to get messed up way in the backcountry, and it kind of brings... Me and Mike peeked over a couple edges. <laughs> in prison, <laughs> yeah, I remember one in particular. I, was like, I wasn't about to snowboard down. Yeah, I was just like, Steve, you can go ahead and look over that edge. I'm just not cool right here. So at, uh, let's go way, way back. Well, I'm, I'm going to go way back in time for a minute here. During like the Pleistocene epic, you had muskox all the way. Like, there's, there's a term circumpolar, like muscles, like the blue muscle you eat when you get muscles in a restaurant. The blue muscle is circumpolar. There's a band of latitudes around the globe 
that that muscle exists at, okay? Um, way back during the Pleistocene, the European Stone Ages, you know, where you got humans spread around, but still a long time ago, muskox were circumpolar. They were like all through the Arctic, but way down, man. Like, there's cave paintings of muskox down in France. So, Cro-Magnon people, Stone Age Europeans were hunting for muskox. If it's any indication that they used to paint the stuff they hunted on cave walls from 30,000, 35,000 years ago, you had muskox way down there. Um, interestingly, by the time anyone, due to under our current understanding, by the time any human being stepped foot in the Western Hemisphere or in this step foot in North America, muskox only existed in North America, it seems, by that point in time. Um, when the Russians first started dicking around in the Arctic and you know, some Amer and, and Americans were coming up, not quite Americans yet, but were coming up into the Arctic, they were running the muskox all through Alaska, the Canadian high Arctic, into Greenland, like everywhere. But they whittled away at them and whittled away at them. And they, by about 1820, muskox were gone from Alaska, extirpated. Uh, you'll often, if you're reading about what happened to all the muskox, and that's what, like, let me, let me back up one quick second. A muskox is a big, woolly animal with like a horn boss where his horns drop down and sort of go along the side of his head and curl out. Like, what's that haircut we were saying? I can't. Like, is it a Betty Page? Yeah, yeah. No, it's like Little Debbie on the Little Debbie snack cake. Yeah, yeah. If you ever eaten a Little Debbie, what are what are some of those Little Debbie deals? Remember those? The uh, uh, she was a big sponsor. Of ding dongs. Ding dong. You're eating a ding dong. <laughs> um, it's like a muskox's horns, like are sort of plastered over the top of his head and drop straight down into candy cane hooks. They got real woolly coats. In fact, they produce a wool called kiviat, and it's supposed to be X times warmer than any other kind of wool on the planet. A big bull might be six, seven, eight hundred pounds. Um, and they live in coastal Arctic regions. People, you'll, you'll read different things. You'll read like, oh, the Russian fur traders wiped out the muskox. And then some people will point out the Russian fur traders didn't actually wipe out the muskox. Natives wiped out the muskox operating on behalf of Russian fur traders who wanted the meat and the hides. So whatever it was, Russians came in flashing big money around and people shot the muskox out. Peary, like when you hear about Arctic explorers, you hear about the guy named Peary. Some guy sat down and figured out how many muskox did Peary's expeditions alone account for. And they like Peary killed 600 muskox to feed his expeditions. The Arctic explorer Stephenson, he's always eating muskox. Um, we'll get into why it's easy to wipe out muskox and how you could probably wipe out muskox the second time if you felt like it within about five months, five or six months if you felt like it. They're not difficult to find. But they wiped them out of Alaska by the mid-1800s. Then in 1930, I'm just giving you some background here. In 1930, they brought... 30-some muskox from Greenland, one of the places where they hadn't been extirpated. So, like, the super remote shit muskox never got killed out of. They never got killed out of Greenland, and I think, like, Banks Island. 
the Coronation Gulf area, the way Canadian high Arctic stuff, they never got wiped out of. So in 1930s, someone was like, man, we should get some muskox back. They went to Greenland, got some muskox, and eventually put those muskox out on Nunavak Island in the Bering Sea, which is off western Alaska. And they dumped them out on Nunavak Island. They just let them start reproducing. And then it wasn't much time at all. They had hundreds of the things. So at that point in time, like as late as 1965, the only muskox that existed in, in the U.S., besides for a captive zoo specimen here and there, were the pop, was the population on Nunavak or Nunavak. Uh, they went out and caught some of those in the 60s to start an experimental herd in Fairbanks where they wanted to start messing around with this idea of using it as an agricultural product where you'd raise muskox to get the wool kiviet and you'd have like economic development in rural areas. That seems to have kind of gone nowhere. As that herd on Nunavak expanded, they kept or grew in numbers, they kept peeling off some to start all these herds. And now if you look at a map of Alaska where muskox live, they're kind of like back to everywhere they would have been. You got them on Seward Peninsula, the first muskox I ever seen, the first time, the first three times I ever ran into muskox was all hunting caribou on the North Slope. They got muskox on the North Slope, around Prudhoe Bay. They're around, and that's kind of how they came to be. So hunting opportunities are extremely limited for muskox. The hunt I did, the state of Alaska, the hunt I just did, the state of Alaska calls like DX003. It's a hunt unit you apply for. It's a tag that's good from February 1 to March 15th on Nunavak Island. And it has, I don't know, it's about a 9% chance of drawing the tag. They're giving out fewer and fewer tags right now. The herd's not doing great on Nunavak. I think this year they gave out 20 tags for the winter hunt. And then, I don't know, five or 10 tags for the summer hunt. Um, the, the spring hunt they call is the March hunt, and it's cold. So did you choose Nunavak specifically, or are there other draws in different areas of the... the this year, Nunavak is the only draw a non-resident can put in for. So like the way Alaska run hunt is Alaska has over-the-counter stuff, which is just over-the-counter stuff. Tag you go and buy. You can buy it the day you want to go hunting. They have registration hunts, which are first come, first serve, open to residents. Then they have like the then they have like a tier one draw, which is a resident draw. Then they have just like the drawing hunts. And so if a non-resident wants to put in for a muskox tag, so if you don't live in Alaska and you want to hunt muskox, right now, Nunavak's your only option. You can go up the Northwest Territories and just buy permits from guides. But if you want to hunt here, that's it. Nunavak Island. I was awarded one of the tags several years ago and wasn't able to go. And I never thought I would have had another chance. It's almost not even fair that you can draw it and draw again. Like a lot of stuff's not that way. If you draw a buffalo tag in Alaska, that's it for the rest of your life. If you draw a toke sheep tag, it's it for like four or seven years. I don't know why they let you keep cracking on muskox. It's not fair, but I did it and I got a second tag and went back and we just got back. Um, what was interesting was that the locals on the island had to, it was a first come first, first come first serve basis. It's ridiculous. Get a tag on the island, even, you know, out of the 200 people there, I think, uh, one of our, one of our, uh, guides was saying, Raymond, 
that he stood in line, or he was the first one there, and he was two days early, so he must have stood in line two days to get a tag. Yeah. So yeah, tags are always distributed. Like generally, I shouldn't say always. Registration hunts are you go online and get the tag. It's like a, or you go some you have to go into the actual office and get a tag. So you might have a registration hunt where you got to go to Bethel, Alaska to pick up your tag, right? And that really limits it to dudes in Bethel because people aren't generally going to fly to Bethel to pick up a tag. The residents, the Chupik on Nunavak Island, every year get allocated some number of tags. This year, I think it was five cow tags, five bull tags. Mm-hmm. There's 200 people that live on the island. Um, it's not online. It's that a dude from Alaska Department of Fish and Game flies out there with the tags and hands the tags out to the first guys waiting in line. So Raymond was saying the same people seem to get the tags every year. So he went and waited in line two days in a row this year so that when the guy that showed up, he got a cow tag for a muskox. Yeah, and he's out there right now. He's out there two days. He's probably out butchering a muskox right now. Yeah. And that's a subsistence hunt for him. There are a lot of muskox hunts in Alaska where it's a registration hunt and you have to destroy the head of the muskox. You have to saw the horns in half. Really? They have those for moose, too. You know, they don't want you doing the hunt. They don't want a trophy dude coming out to do the hunt. So they make it that, sure, you can go get the registration thing and hunt the muskox, but you don't get to keep the head. You got to destroy the head. I read an article about a guy who was involved in the game commission in Alaska who tried to pull a fast one. And he, because you can buy handicrafts from indigenous people. Like, you know, people are trying to sell us seal hats, right? You can't buy a seal skin from a native Alaska. Like, you can't buy a seal skin from a Chupik, for instance, because of the Marine Mammal Protection Act. But if that individual takes that seal skin and makes something out of it, you can buy it from them. Like, you can buy carved ivory, but you can't buy raw ivory. So could they give so say this is a square seal towel? That's the thing. <laughs> That's what I people wonder about that all the time. And like I, I don't know somewhere it's spelled out. But anyway, some guy had gone and said, "Well, I'm going to go do a registration muskox hunt, kill my muskox, give the head to a native woman, have her do a carving on it, and then buy it back from her." And they determined that that violated the spirit of that law. I'd be like, just a little teeny carving on the bottom would be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Write your name on the, on the, the upper palette. <laughs> the one that sits on the wall. So the, the, first, like, the biggest thing that coming up, like coming up to go out and hunt, what, what else should we say? What, what else is important to establish about muskogs? They taste good. Talking more about that boss, you know, I read that the horns and then the skull beneath it to where the brain cavity starts is, Eight to ten inches thick. Is that right? Muskox bash heads when they... It's like sheep do. Yeah. Like when bighorns are bashing heads, it sounds like a twenty-two rifle. In fact, I was out hunting one time and thought a guy kept shooting a gun and later realized it was two bighorns cracking heads. I saw a bighorn ram a tree one time. I counted. He ran that tree 75 times and I quit counting. <laughs> are you serious? 75 times in a row. A bighorn sheep can withstand 40 times... The, the, a bighorn sheep can withstand the amount of power to his head 40 times greater than what would fracture your skull. Why do you think he was in the tree for practice? 
just getting pumped up, I guess. It's his time of year. It was September. They don't rut till November. It's like a football player just like banging his helmet on the wall. He was banging a ponderosa pine. And all of his buddies must have did the same thing because his ponderosa pine looked like someone had been hitting with a baseball bat for about three years. Yeah, it was nuts. So they got a what yeah, what's called a horn boss. Where the horns are like on top of their head. It's like if a girl who's got thick old hair pulls, splits her hair down the center and makes a braid or like a pony, a pigtail on each yeah, side. Yeah, like, almost like piggy tails. That'd be like a hair boss. And the horn boss is just this amorphous blob of horn that sits up there. And as the bull gets bigger, it grows bigger and bigger. And that thing's polished off like someone took a palm sander to it. it looks kind of like an ass. It does. Yeah. Not off anyone I know. No. But yeah. It's ass-like. In that it has a gluteal crease. It has a crack. Yeah. <laughs> um, beautiful animals. You, when, you, when you're reading about muskox, because muskox like live in the Arctic, and they're real woolly. People always be like an Ice Age relic. But all animals that we know about today, with the exception of perhaps the mule deer, are Ice Age relics. I never, I think people say that because it's woolly. But like, why don't people say human beings, the Ice Age relics? Like we were alive during the Ice Age. Or you might say the field mouse, the Ice no, Age No, it's just, relic. it's because it still lives in a Ice Age-like climate. Is that what they mean? I think so. I think so, yeah. You remember the lead up to the Iraq war? I was reading that Saddam Hussein had published several books of poetry and novels. And I would always say, Saddam Hussein, the poet and novelist. You know? It's like... In conversation, I say... Yeah, I'd be like, you know, Saddam Hussein, the poet and novelist, his country's being invaded. Um, but yeah, like, everything's a, like everything's the Ice Age relic. But that might be what they mean, that it's out on the tundra. Which would mean you'd have to say um, a vole, the Ice Age relic. He still lives on the tundra. Mm-hmm. You know? It just looks like a throwback to like it, a That's shot. what it is. Yeah. You think you're looking at a mammoth. Yeah. That thing had hair on it. The one we butchered, the muskox we butchered, had hair on it that was over 18 inches long. Short of a horse's tail, nothing has hair like that. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. 
This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Yeah, it's very interesting to see him standing there and then actually moving, running, and it's almost like they had a skirt mm-hmm. around him. And that hair almost seemed like it, it was close to the ground. Almost hits the ground. Yeah, almost yeah. hits the ground. The writer Peter Matheson, who wrote a book about, like there's some natives called muskox, not on not the Chupik, but some natives call muskox Umingmac. Peter Matheson wrote this book. It's sort of like a magazine article that turned into a book that he wrote. And he relates that wool, the way it sways. He talks about it, reminds him of chain mail moving. And he also has a line where when they're in tall grass, the grass coming up from the ground and the wool coming down from the animal meet in a way that makes it hard to sort of distinguish where one ends and one begins. So kind of like they're just gliding across the... Yeah, as the animal moves. They do seem to glide, like they're on wheels almost. Super wooly. And um, I remember like when I was working on my Buffalo book, I remember reading it. They did this study where they took um, different animals. They had a, high, a Scottish Highland cattle, a Tibetan yak, and a buffalo, and put them in Connex containers and started lowering the temperature to find out at which point the animal's metabolic rate went up in response to the, to the drop in temperature. Like, it would basically be like when you started shivering and getting, like, not relaxed. And 
they had a, I think they had like an Angus in there. He tapped out at like 10 degrees. Um, the Scottish Highland cattle tapped out. The Tibetan yak tapped out. The coldest they could get that Connex container was negative 40, and the buffalo was still relaxing. But I'm telling you, a muskox had smoked that thing. You can't, you can't find his body. You know what I'm saying? When he's laying there dead, you can't, it, you can't get your hand to where it's touching leather. Like where you'd part it. Like if you're looking at your dog to find ticks, you can't do that with a muskox. You can't find him underneath there. It's really hard to tell what is in there. You know? It's very thick. Where'd it's you guess that? We were just packing that, that. We checked in the hide already at uh, Alaska Air. and How much that hide weigh? Uh, yeah, I threw it on 85. the 85, I think. Yeah, the hide, no hooves on it. So this is a hide cut from the ankle, skinned out and clean skinned. I mean, not a scrap of fat or meat on that hide. That hide weighed 85 pounds. Well, the layer of skin, too, is super dense, too. Way thick, fat, fat, yeah. fat leather. Yeah. The biggest thing, I'll say this, like, I, I, as we get into this discussion about muskox, I just want to cut right to the main primary point. And, and, and leading up to this hunt, not the primary point, but just something to think, this is going to tee off a whole other conversation. Leading up to this hunt, I was talking to this dude who was saying, it's not really a hunt. It's like an experience. And when we were out, I had observed to someone how all animals have like a vulnerability um, that we exploit when we hunt them. You know, deer are suckers for alfalfa and shelled corn, right? Um, turkeys, when they're breeding, they're very vocal, uh, right? Everything. Sure. Kind of find their weakness, and that's how. Yeah. On them. Ducks are gregarious, right? Ducks want to be around other ducks. So you play that against them. You make sounds that sound like a duck. You put out some fake ducks. Duck can't help himself. He's got to go check it out, you know, generally. The thing you exploit on the muskox is they just like got nowhere to go, for one. And they'll bunch up when they're threatened. They'll, they'll bunch up and stand around. And it's easy to see how dudes wiped them out. They got nowhere to go. You know, and they can't really put on miles very fat, like not that fat, not like most stuff can put on miles. So this guy was saying the hunt's more of an experience, and I can say that it is, and I would almost haven't done it now. I would almost say that it's not really a hunt, but what makes it like the hunting the animal, I wouldn't say is really like a hard hunt. What makes it what it is is the conditions you're dealing with. And the, the getting to the place you're going to and being in the place you're going to is tough. Like, how would you guys sort of describe the cold and wind? Oh, it's full tundra, negative 25 below with that wind, yeah. wind chill. What was the coldest temp we saw? I think it, um, well... It was negative, it was negative 10... No wind chill. Yeah, that's just, that was just air temperature. Yeah. Well, the wind's whipped. Yeah, yeah. Yesterday it was. I mean, there was gusts like to thirty, and so I just. I mean, I th who knows what the wind chill was? It's probably like negative twenty-five. I mean, it was cold. And you're in the middle of the Bering Sea, so the humidity level is way high. 
Yeah. It's like the, comparing Michigan 10 degrees to Montana 10 degrees. That Michigan 10 degrees is way cold. But this is way different. Yeah. Like, the, no, this island is not, it's hard at times. When we were fishing cod, Tom Cod, through the ice, I couldn't tell when I was on land or on ice. Yeah, it's all just a big white blanket that's undulating. It's like, I feel like, why aren't we kind of drilling a hole over the dirt? <laughs> And you realize that you are out. It's like there's no real protective buffer on land. No vegetation. Well, it, I mean, there's tundra, but nothing to block the wind. The wind howls. Well, man. The funny thing is, it's like they've they've got, you know, sand dunes, but they're made of snow. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way of putting it. It's nice and you know it's soft, but those are, I mean, those are sand. You know, they're snow dunes, just blasted by the wind. They just move, just as you know a sand dune would on the beach, but it's just white blistering cold i was wearing just just this is just to go stand around i was wearing bunny boots bunny boots are like government issue cold weather korean war boots which are rated to negative 63 degrees fahrenheit yeah which you know we should go, we should go ahead and just jump in and promote some bunny boots because if anybody does any cold weather activities and needs some cold boots that you're not going to really hike too far in Spend the sixty to hundred bucks, get some military surplus bunny boots, and you will not be disappointed. There really isn't. No one makes a boot that can go. No one makes an equivalent. There is no equivalent. And the other thing is, it's sealed rubber. So, like we always warm ice fishing because you can't. You can fill the boot up with water, but the water can't get to the insulation. It's it's wool sealed between rubber. Bunny boots, if you're, like, bunny boots are these big-ass white boots that actually have a pressure valve on the side that you need to like open when you're flying so you don't burst the boot. When I was a kid, they were five bucks. I mean, we just had bunny boots, man. Five bucks a piece. Now they're what? 120. Yeah, something like that. And they got like instructions written on them. It says like double lace to hold firmly. And then it says um, open valve when airborne. And they're white. They're great. I mean, oh, you, I love you can, them. yeah, nothing, nothing would have, I mean, running on them was terrible. I they mean, sweat, though. And, yeah, and you yeah, sweat. Yeah, you sweat. They're not for walking, man. People call them Mickey Mouse boots, too, but then I was hearing, like, the Mickey Mouse or the different. black ones? I didn't know this till recently. If you see black bunny boots, which are Mickey Mouse boots, they're not, I thought it was just you could get them in black or in white, but black is not as cold rated as white. Black's negative 20. White's negative sixty something. I think it's negative sixty. Which is one of the few things in life that's actually true. Because like when someone tells you sleeping bags rated for negative ten, they're lying. <laughs> that's a survival rating, though. Yeah, the comfort rating is probably like twenty. Yeah, survival rating. Like I always go. I don't know. I carry a sleeping bag that's probably like I'll generally go ten or twenty degrees off of what they're saying is the rating. For me, it's my. Legs get cold. Yeah. Anyways, these boots are legit. Some warm ass. I've boots. never been had such comfortable feet out in times like that. So yeah, so I'm running around in like thick merino blend socks, bunny boots, merino LJs, then like a REI kind of sweat panty thing, down pants, then like 
the new first light bibs. What do you call them? Sanctuary, which are some heavy, nice bibs. Synthetic insulation. Then I got a merino base layer, a merino hoodie, a fleece shirt, the same first light type sanctuary jacket, then a giant down puffy, a neck gaiter, a face mask, another face mask, a fur hat, gloves, and beaver fur mittens. And goggles. And goggles. And at that point, you're feeling pretty bulletproof. <laughs> like, you're just not cold. Did you get cold ice fishing? No. Oh, yeah, my feet did because I was kneeling for so long. Yeah. And by then, I'd sweated up my boots. My boots are sweaty right now. Um, it's just cold, man. It's like cold. in a, it, I mean, that's the coldest I've, I mean, the coldest to this point that I'd ever experienced, I think was when we were in Montana for elk. And that was like, I think it was like five when we were in the wall teepee tent, the teepee tent. Yeah. I mean at night, but when we were out in the, in the environment hunting and stuff, I mean, that, those are the coldest temperatures I'd ever experienced. And so I'd never, I'd, this is the first time I've ever felt negative temperatures. Yeah. But what was wicked about, it's almost more wicked in Montana. Cause you got to move, you got to climb. Right. Nunavak's flat. Right. And you're on snow machines. So you can get all bundled up. And if you're conservative, dude, when we, when we walked a little ways, I was pouring sweat, man. But out there when it's so cold, if you watch those guys, they have like the, the Chupic, man. They have like a, you don't see a lot of people jogging around town. They're like very purposeful movements, man. You're planning ahead. Like there's this, this tentativeness pervades about what the weather's doing i remember like the day we got there a kid had gone out he was going out on a snow machine to fish he's going to fish dolly vardens and he was coming back i'm like we were like oh are you out fishing he said we called it off because they had seen some some kind of weather thing you know anybody else like would have been like ah, let's go anyways but just like a you know deep respect for the weather man Oh, yeah. Like, you do stuff when the weather says it's okay to do it. Yeah. You know? I mean, they weren't even... And not bashful about it. It's not like... They don't try to act like... Those dudes don't try to act like... Like, we'll try to act like, hell, I'm going anyway, man. Can't hold me back. You know? They're like, no, the weather's no good. I'm not going. We're going the weather's right. Because <laughs> they know how much it sucks. Because they know, man. It's ridiculous, yeah. man. Yeah, nature will, uh, you know, put you on your ass in an instant... Oh, it's deadly. And they're traveling long distances on snow machines. So you might be like, oh, yeah, they're hunting off snow machines. But it'd be kind of like saying, like, yeah, but, dude, you're hunting out of a truck because you drive to where you start hunting. They're hunting 50 miles away, 25 miles away from the village. So you might think, like, you might all feel, like, proud of yourself because you hike in a mile to where you hunt. But... If you're hunting 26 miles from your house and you drive in a car 25 miles and then walk one mile and feel proud of yourself because you walked a mile to where you hunt, I don't know. Is snow machining 26 miles in negative temperatures like that gravy? No, not at all. It's really not. It's like it's a difficult place to be out in, you know, and that really plays into how you hunt. It's like a difficult place to be out in, you know. So there's this sort of like, uh, they're like in that cold when you're not accustomed to it. And then being out and you're in a strange place and it's sea ice, which looks like 
not like a frozen hockey pond. I mean, it's just like a jumble of ice piled up is out there in the wind. I don't know, you get like this, I don't want to say like a feeling of danger, but you get a feeling of, as an outsider, you get a feeling of being on, on the edge of something. It's like another planet. Yeah. It is. And the guys that live there are not flippant about it. They're probably more paranoid, not paranoid, more cautious, you know. Respectful. Oh, then we would be, for sure. Yeah. And, and, yeah, until you gain that respect. So do you think if, if somebody said, okay, go hunt a muskox, and then you, they just dropped you there, you know, you would obviously you wouldn't have the same approach as you do now, having done it. Just start beating the ground? Yeah, just like, oh, well, I'm going to go walk over there and look around and find them and get them. It's, it's, hard, to th- it's hard to picture how you do it. Yeah. You would just have to travel just like Arctic ski explorers do now. You'd have to travel with a sled behind you on skis, and you'd have to be packing, you know, whether it's Arctic ovens or I don't know what. Yeah, alcohol yeah. stove. There's no wood to burn. Yeah. You travel with the alcohol stove. Like we got, for our, our, we have an Arctic oven tent, and we got a thing called like the Heat Pal 5500. It's like a sailboat heater, burns denatured alcohol. But, to keep warm in those conditions, you're gonna be going through a, at least a quart of alcohol a night. Well, and how are you gonna get everything back if you get one? It's like, yeah. Then here's this seven hundred, this seven hundred pound bull laying there, and you snow, you you skied thirty miles out of the it's village. Forty below. They're excited if they can find a musk ox within twelve miles of Mikoryuk. Let's talk about Mikoryuk for a minute. Like when the rush, like. When the, when the Russians first made contact with the Chupik, they said there was 400 people living on Nunavak in something like 17 villages or something. Yeah, that's what I read. People were living at every river mouth. Now there's 200 people in one village. Yeah. Later, some and I Russians... I think they go to some of those old villages now, and now they're, just, they're, now they're just called fish camps. Yeah. Oh, is that what they meant by fish camps? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, once like church, a church came, a school came... People got centralized. Later, someone came and estimated there were 700 people living in like far fewer villages and far more people after the Russians first made outside contact. Um, so now everybody in Mikoryuk, uh, everyone on the island lives in Mikoryuk. There's about 200 people. It's just like on a spit of snow out on the Bering Sea. And what's interesting about it is it's like they still live very much. I mean, there's, you know, everybody's got a TV, right? There's electricity. Surface level stuff, like very modern existence, but underneath it is that it's still subsistence lifestyle. Um, they hunt seals. They hunt walrus. They do subsistence fishing. They eat stuff that Americans won't eat easily. Like chum salmon. You know how people are always like talking about fresh salmon? They don't catch their salmon. They fish chums for food, for human consumption. They fish chums after the chums have spawned. And they look like hell. They got fungus all over their fins. Then they net them and eat them because they, the less fat on the fish allows it to, to dry, dry faster. Yeah. They dried fish dipped in seal oil a lot, which is something we ate kind of. Um, one day after we hunted muskox, we went out to fish a fish called tomcod. And we went, uh, I mean, how close were we to the bank? 20 feet. Just like yeah. 
took forever to drill. We had a dull spud. <laughs> I don't even know if you call it. It was basically like trying to spud a hole to drink and straw, man. It's like a hunk of metal. Like crowbar. I mean, I guess crowbar would be even sharp, sharper. I mean, just, crowbar's way sharper. Yeah, it was blunt. Two feet, right, Vice? Slowly chiseled a hole. You couldn't have pulled a can of beer up through that hole. Well, that, and, like, well, but it started wide. By the time that some bitch got through the bottom of the ice, you couldn't have shoved a beer can through it. And that was the second hole. The first hole just petered out. Yeah, it hit dirt, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We chilled. We chiseled another hole and got down to the ice. Ended at dirt. There's no like water column underneath the ice. So we go drill a second hole, and he's got a rig where he's got like a stick with some line wound around two dowels punched into the stick at perpendicular angle to the dowel. And there's a handful of beads on there and a banana. So it's like it runs from the monofilament to a barrel swivel. Then there's like five or six beads. No, a banana weight. Then five or six beads and a big-ass rusty dull treble hook. He lowers that thing down that hole. I'm like, come on, dude. That ain't going to work. And out pops a Tom Cod within seconds. Yeah, man. it was so fast. We sat out there and caught 30 Tom Cod. Just like sometimes it's as fast as you can pull them out of the ice. And it was with the tide, right? I mean, the... the uh, yeah, he said like tide, tide fluctuations affect it. And whenever the tide changed, you could hear like boulders and stuff moving under an ice. There was this dull thud. Yeah, stuff moving Kind of resonating through the, the ground. This dude that we, like, when you hunt the Nunavak hunt, you have to hire a guide. Um, or, an, or you have to hire what's called a transporter. Because the only way to get on Nunavak is you have to land on native land. Most of the island is, what, what's the refuge? It's the uh, Yukon Kuskokwim Delta National Wildlife Refuge. So, Yana, speak to about the land ownership issues. Who owns what? where we could hunt, where normal dudes can hunt, because it's kind of interesting. Yeah, because we always have to get film permits to hunt public land. Usually costs us anywhere from 1000 to $2,000 for a week-long shoot to be on, to be filming public land. Because it's a commercial, commercial use permit. Yeah, because we're going to take the footage and then sell it. Um, this was a National Wildlife Refuge, which we've had permits before in the past, but what we didn't realize is that on Nunavak, um, most of the refuge is wilderness as well. And so they don't really give out commercial film permits or any kind of commercial permit on wilderness too much. And so... Well, you can guide hunters out there. Yes. Kind of just like you can in the Bob Marshall. This is a side note to what I think is like a seriously bullshitty thing on part of the federal government. Is that you can get a permit in the Bob Marshall Wilderness Area to every day march up 20 tourists on horseback, load them onto rafts, raft them down the river, have a giant base camp set up at the trailhead, generators running, hauling in horse feed every day all summer long. And that's A-OK. Commercial use. But... Two dudes and a camera can't go in there. Well, it's are, such bullshit, man. They are reworking the, the, the rules and, and the regs. On yeah, but you want to talk about high-impact use. No, I hear you. But I think those, those rules are written for back in the day when any, 
when basically if someone was going to come to film, it was going to be like a big Hollywood production. Yeah, so setting they, up fake Western towns. Yeah, and, and they're like, no, we don't want that. Understandable. Now it's different. You can go in there and film a show like you just said with a couple guys, a couple cameras. Yeah, because like an outfitter, and I'm not, I'm not hacking, I'm not saying the outfitter shouldn't be able to do it, but an outfitter could be like, he's got wall tent camp set up every which way, packing in dudes on horses, right? Setting up full-on little villages out there, electrified wires to keep grizzlies out, stacks of hay, cutting firewood. And you can't be out there with a backpack and a handy cam. Do they still make handy cams? Mm-hmm. You can't be out there with a backpack and a camera. You, know? you can, as long as you're not going to. Yeah, but we're talking about commercial use. The guys that run those rafting companies where they're hauling in 30 people every day to float down rafts aren't out there for, for charity. No. It just, it just seems like it, it just strikes me as being not fair. There's a case to be made, and we're going to work on it. We're going to yeah. get a film permit. So the, at the refuge, they're actually reviewing their film permit process, and so we couldn't even apply for a permit. Right. So we can't film the whole... The, the, new, the, the, the Chupic, this is something I don't even want to get into, but, the, but native communities are organized into corporations in Alaska. It's not like the reservation system in the lower 48. Native communities, through the Native Claims Settlement Act, which is put in under Carter have corporations where, where native community members are shareholders in a corporation and sort of their world is run as a corporation. They own this big, long strip across the north shore of Nunavak. Yeah, it's like anywhere, I think, from like one to three miles from the shoreline inland. For how many miles does that thing run? I think about 30, basically from McCoyuk to Nash Harbor. And... Uh, when I applied, when I first applied for the permit, trying to get it, and I had some spots that, that our James Whitman, our uh, outfitter, had told me we were going to hunt. The dude came back and said, oh, well, all that stuff's on NEMA Corporation land, so you guys can film there as much as you want, as long as NEMA will let you. And uh, so they did. We paid a trespass fee, and uh, they signed a location release for us. And we basically had to find a muskox on that land if you guys were going to get to see us hunt muskox. Which is a big chunk of land, but it's like... Right, from what we later found out is that as the season progresses, there's muskox like a couple miles from town the first day of the hunt, you know, when the first dudes come in. And then as those animals are hunted, hassled, they just move farther south, farther south, which is basically just getting away from Akoryuk. And so by the time we were the last group, on the island to hunt muskox. Yeah, no one was out there hunting when we were out there. No, I think there was a couple of locals. Yeah, d- yeah, doing yeah, yeah, doing their hunt, yeah. but there's no more. Um, the day we actually no got out, some dudes were leaving on a snow machine to go hunt a cow. Yeah, they blew past us. One of those guys had rain bibs on. I remember. For, yeah. so the client, he was ready to butcher. The client that James had previous to us killed his muskox basically on the southern tip of the island, fifty miles one direction away from town. Was it fifty miles just out? Yeah, and 50 miles back. Oh, yeah. I thought that was combined. That would have been brutal. No, man, he did, he did 100 miles on a snow machine that day. Oh. Yeah. So, thank goodness. We probably found the only bull. Yeah, I was doing some serious praying, you know. I don't pray too often, but I was praying that we could find. Who are you directing them to? Huh? Just the universe. You are praying to the universe? Yeah. For muskox to be on Nima land? Yes. The bull muskox. Oh, it worked. The other, su- the other thing, that- <laughs> what's way more interesting than hunting muskox is hunting walrus. And these guys go out, um, when the ice starts to break up in late spring, 
they go out and hunt walrus. They look, they cruise around in their boats trying to find walrus that are hauled out on the ice floes. And a walrus weighs 2,000 pounds. And they kill him with a 223 in the head. Ray was going to go kill his cow muskox with a 223. Yeah, in the head. Yeah. He said, You hit that walrus right. And he kind of showed me where you got to hit it. He said, It just crumples. And he hunts seals the same way. Hit him in the head with a 223. Close range. And pile him up. And then you jack that walrus up on the ice if he falls in the water and you start chopping up a 2,000 pound critter. Oh, so they butcher it on the ice? Yeah. They don't, t- they don't haul it on the boat. No. They, I guess it would be impossible. It ice. I'd like to get involved in that. Yeah, we really wanted to. Unfortunately, we were just a little too early. Sounds like the seal and the walrus hunting is in about another month. Yeah, so we went out and fished these tomcod, and he was showing us a traditional thing they eat where, like a tomcod's about, if you're familiar with lake perch, tomcod's as big as a lake perch. Looks just like a damn cod, but it's like the size of a perch, you know? Well, like eight, 10 inches. Yeah. 12 inches for a big one, big fatty. And they take a, a they, they freeze, I mean, the fish freezes rock-ass solid the minute you pull it out of the water. But they take the fish, take a ulu knife, and cut, not fillets, just shave off pieces of the fish, frozen rock solid, and then just dip it in seal oil and eat it. And our guide's wife, our guide was born out there. Our wife was, you know, Chupik and was born there. She was saying that her father had explained that if you just lived on tomcod, you would starve to death. But if you ate tomcod dipped in seal oil, you could stay alive. And I asked her if that was something that in his generation was a reality. And she said, oh, yes. Like they, you know, they could at that time were still, you know, just in her father's lifetime, face starvation. She had a picture of her father hanging on the wall dressed completely in skins. You know, boots up. Mm-hmm. Now the most common skin item you see is seal skin hats, which Yanni actually bought. <laughs> No, I actually almost. Almost. We were close. This wasn't our style. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just flash me a look that suggests he doesn't want to talk about his seal skin hat. No, no, I have no problem at all sharing the story. It's you know, it's pretty interesting. It was it was a tense negotiation. Yeah, it was. So Tia Tia, one of you guys talk one of you guys I, I don't I wasn't even there. I was sick. Yeah, Steve was laid up. Yeah, I had like I had gastrointestinal issues much of the time I was out there. No, when we tapering got, when off we, right when now. When we got into town, our, everybody's wearing these great looking sealskin hats. You know, Ray's got a beard. No, F- ribbon. F-B-R. Ribbon seal. seal. Ribbon seal. Yeah. Yeah. Ribbon Which he said is a rare seal to yeah. run into. A big ass and rare then, seal. And uh, James is wearing a uh, bearded. Bearded. So that's kind of what we've seen. Oh, and in town here in Bethel, we had seen some beaver hats. Steve's rocking a new beaver hat. Corey and I are like, all right, cool. When's the next time we're going to be on another that's old. That's an old beaver hat. You guys were on the hunt. I mean, you're like, yeah. you guys were yeah. out. What's that yeah. like that? We, yeah, you guys were cute. We pulled people hat. over on the streets and uh, asked them if we could take a picture of their Where'd hat. Where'd you get that from? What's that made and out of? Then we'd try it on. Yeah. Yeah, the Korean dude selling $28 hamburgers. He had an amazing fur hat. And he said he paid 300 bucks for it. And I'm like, you got ripped. But then I realized he didn't get ripped at all. Mm-mm. No, dude, a bag of zip, a bag of like bad Ziplocs up here is eight bucks. Yeah, 
Mayonnaise. Tell them the Ma- mayonnaise. Ma- a jar of mayonnaise is $12, which is, that's insanity. If you want to ride a cab across the street, <laughs> it's $20. <laughs> Bethel. Double, Every, everywhere double triple. Everything's three, three double. Yeah, as double, a guy explained, a, a cab driver was trying to explain how expensive. Where's the cab driver from? He was Korean. Yeah, most of the cab drivers we're finding are um, Albanian. Korean or Albanian. There's a Korean segment of the cab driving population. He was trying to explain how expensive everything was and explain to these guys that it's not double. It's three double. (laughs) (laughs) That was our catchphrase for the hunt. What was I just asking you guys to talk about? Oh, the hat. The hat. So we basically (laughs) are are told that, you know, a, a relative of someone's can... Make these hats for us. We're like, sweet. We're Would make you a seal hat. Seal hat, you know, beaver trim. So we're literally looking at one hat, thinking like, all right, this is the hat we're getting made. And it's like very like, okay, you guys sure you want it? We're like, yeah, cool. We're kind of asking like, should we have it? And made? it's a very muted, the seal skin is very muted on the one you're looking at. Yes. It's like a dull gray, some black markings. Yeah, it almost, it's a muted color. It's real subtle. You would yeah. hunt in it. And as they age, the hair stands up on the on yeah. the skin itself. So it's it real a, fuzzy. It has a blonde kind of a fuzz to it almost. Yeah. Dirty blonde though. Dishwater blonde. Kind of brownie blonde. Brownie blonde. <laughs> so three or four days into it, we're told that, hey, both the hats are ready. Let's go. You guys need to go over there. They take your hat size too, right? Buy the measurements. No. No, no, we, no, we didn't do that. You didn't because they got a pad. I was a little nervous about that. It was basically like, yeah, you want large, medium, or small. Oh, you know. So we tried on a few other hats and said, okay, this is large. I'll probably be small. Whatever. Yeah, that was the most nerve wracking part. Was <laughs> is it going to fit? You know. Yeah. So when he said it's you're like, supposed to go over and look at the hat. No, no, no. We need to go over and buy that. They're ready for you to buy. Oh. You put your order in. And so I've been looking, in 2012, I lived in Fairbanks. I saw a lot of these hats there as well, too. Seal I, I almost bought one there. It's the same, seal hat. The same hat. Seal hat with the beaver trim. Some of them had like a, almost like a, the thicker wolf lining, you know, that would give you a little yeah. more, uh, you know, wind protection. So I've been in the market because I feel like sitting on a really high uh, glass and tit when the wind's howling. Like, you'd glass forever wearing that hat. You know? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, we, I should point out, there is no hat warmer than a fur hat. Yeah. Like, it hasn't been matched. Like, no one has matched. Like, my beaver fur hat, it's like no one has matched that with a synthetic material. Right. It's like the subtropics. It's just like... Yeah. You know, you can't hear any. You can't hear anything. You can't hear anything. But you're not going to hike in it. You're so like, anyways, ah, ah. we walk a couple minutes across, you know, a couple through back, but the back alleys of McCoryick, and into another house. No cameras allowed, we were told. And there are these hats, and they are spotted seal. So it's like this blonde, bright blonde base with basically black splotchy kind of polka dots. <laughs> it's like it's like leopard. It's like a leopard. Almost brand. almost leopardy. Yeah. And instead of being like a natural beaver on the, I don't know what you call that part of the hat, but it's basically the forehead. I don't know if it's an accent or if it's actually uh, technically does something and maybe it, it keeps your forehead warmer, but it's a second layer of beaver on the hat. But it's dyed black, like dyed shiny black. Did it say tourist on it? Or just- <laughs> <laughs> right? It said gaper, I think. <laughs> and, uh, you know, mine was, I don't know. 
uh, trimmed in rabbit. Yours was tr- uh, Corey's was trimmed in something that couldn't be identified by anybody in the room. She did not know what it was made out of. Tell that part of the story because that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so we're like looking at them now, and we're like, man. Like, this is not what we thought we were getting. And, like, I want a seal skin hat. I want to wear it. I want to pay $300. Yeah, it looked like something, like, Liberace would have ordered. Yeah, well, <laughs> Someone in Aspen, you know. Yeah, some, some gal in Aspen. Yeah. A female in Aspen's not going to wear a seal skin hat. Oh, yeah. Oh, this one, this it's one? very stylish. I mean, it's beautiful. No, I mean, just because the whole thing, because they, they'd know that a seal had died. No. They'd like furs. Do they? Oh, yeah. Oh, all right. I stand corrected. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, we've 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 entered this sort of you know contractual you know verbal agreement by having these hats made for us. Oh, how well when you first walked in there, she was just like, "Oh, I worked nonstop." She was like, she was shaking her hands, and, and she was she was elderly, and she she was just like, "I've been working nonstop for two days to make these hats for you to make sure that you got them before you left." So, I mean, like you know the. The pressure's on now. It's like, these are yours. Top it all off, we just we were getting ready to actually go shoot outside to cat, you know, just shoot t- shots of McCoryick. We're in, like, full down, triple-double, triple, triple double, no, three-double down layers, bunny boots and everything, walk into this house, and now we get into this uncomfortable situation <laughs> in, like, you know, just as many clothes as you could possibly have on, and we are sweating bullets. And finally, I just had to be like, look, I don't want to disrespect you. We need to get out of this situation. And with enough talking, she finally offered up that said, hey, I don't want a discount for you. Don't buy them at a discount. I can sell them somewhere else. And we basically ended it with that it was a miscommunication. Well, well then her husband comes in, and, like, and everything had kind of like found a, like a nice resolve. Mm, that's and, right. And he comes in, and he introduces himself, and then he sits down, and he's like, he's like well, what's wrong with these hats? What's wrong with you guys? Why, why don't you like these hats? Like, get, you know, kind of he was offended that they didn't like them or they didn't well, want to we, purchase them. Yeah, yeah you boys wanted. Out, he's, you, he's like, what's wrong with these hats? These are perfectly fine. You boys Put them on. You boys Where? wanted a seal hat. You got a seal, a seal hat. hat. You, you ask know. for one, you get one. You know what the moral of the story is? If you want a ribbon seal hat, you got to say ribbon seal. Exactly. You're exactly yeah. right. You are exactly right. Or bearded seal. Bearded, yeah. And then she had a lot of other things. But it, it's it, there is definitely a, a, a little feeling of like, okay, remember, we're in like a very small town of 200 people. We're on an island. Like, we are outsiders. We need to play this very Yes. Cool. We want to get out of here. With some di- <laughs> diplomacy, yeah. Yeah, but I understand too because these, these hats are not um, cheap. No, three hundred bucks a piece. Three hundred bucks, yeah. So just so listeners realize, we're talking about a three hundred dollar hat, and for three hundred bucks, you should get what you want. Yeah, you know, because it's certainly it's a very it's vastly inflated. You know, the dude that wanted my the dude that wanted my um, a guy wanted one of my rifles, a seventeen caliber rifle, and when I talked about how maybe I would pry his sealskin hat out of him for it. He didn't act like that was any kind of sacrifice on his part whatsoever. You know, I think sealskin hats grow on trees. The spotted ones, apparently. But they're sweet looking, man. The, yeah, when they're the, done right. The official cool. ones are badass. Yeah. 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 So either way, Corey and I are still sealskin hatless. The, uh, the, I just would, I wish we could have identified what was the interior of yours, Corey, because I think it tr- was. <laughs> you could say it was like this. Is this made a dog? <laughs> I think it was dog. 
some sort of dog. Yeah. Another thing they got going on out here, which is cool, is you go. So there are no native. Nunavak has no large native land mammals. Um, for native animals, native land mammals, they have a variety of small voles and things. Um, Arctic fox, red fox. That's about it. I think a red fox is the biggest native land land mammal they have out there. But for, for a long time, though, they've had a herd of reindeer. Mm-hmm. And they have muskox. And muskox, while they were in... Like historically, they were inland. They weren't. Doesn't seem that they were actually on Nunavak. They were inland, but they weren't on the island. Um, the island at one time had mammoths and all kinds of stuff. But you know, when the when the sea levels were much much lower. But when the sea levels rose, and that in the Bering Sea, which is very a shallow ocean, was just like a you know a grassland step environment. It had many animals. Water level rose. Things turned to tundra eventually. No big stuff out there, but now they got muskox and reindeer. And they, you know, reindeer is like, the term reindeer is sort of a, like a reindeer is a Eurasian caribou. People talk about different species of caribou, woodland, mountain, um, barren ground. But a geneticist doesn't even, geneticists don't even really draw a distinction between reindeer or the European caribou and the, the caribou that we have here. But it, regard, they have a reindeer population. So seed stock of the animals came from Europe, and they're like a domestic critter out there. They don't do any agriculture. They just feed on tundra. They live a wild life. But I guess what makes them domestic is they round them up with snow machines and slaughter them. And the where they do their slaughtering is about maybe like three and a half, four miles from the village. And they slaughter reindeer on what is the biggest lake on the island. And the lake's frozen solid. And again, you wouldn't know you're on a lake. It just looks like snow everywhere and flat stuff, but you're on a lake. They drive, the, they built these big drive line fences, like funnel fences. They go out on snow machines and push the reindeer out onto this ice. Shoot all the reindeer in the head with a, I'm assuming with a 22 or 223, apparently. Kill all the reindeer. And then everybody in the village buys reindeer. This year, I think the going price is two hundred and fifty bucks from a reindeer for a reindeer. That's just like what they pay. So like that's what a community member pays to access one of the reindeer that's owned by the community. And there's some commercial slaughtering going on too, where some guy is shooting reindeer and then shipping the meat out. So they butcher these reindeer out on the ice, and they're just pulling meat off them. Like all the heads, all the horns, all the hides are just laying out on the ice. Spring comes, ice melts, and all that stuff just goes into the lake. They've been doing this for decades and decades and decades. And I think if you wanted to make the weirdest video ever, you would go to that lake and snorkel around or scuba dive around filming decades worth of caribou or decades worth of reindeer skulls and horns accumulated on the bottom of a tundra lake where nothing breaks down. Boneyard, underwater. Nothing breaks down there. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's what tundra is. It's just like vegetation that doesn't decompose. You know, it is probably the creepiest place on the planet. You couldn't wade through there. 
No. No. It is just... So the ice is covered with slaughtered caribou bits and pieces. And, like, you go out there, and it's just, like, red fox and arctic fox just a coming and going out there. The arctic fox coming off the sea ice. The red fox come off the island. I got one of each, a red fox and an arctic fox. And um, Whitman was telling me that in the old days, when arctic fox is worth 100 bucks, he'd just sit out there in a little hut shooting arctic fox and selling them. And another thing he did for business, is we're talking about fishing tomcod, he would call into Bethel here, find out who wanted tomcod, and he'd sell frozen tomcod for two fifty a pound. Catch them through the ice, freeze them, send them by air to Bethel. We didn't catch five bucks for the tomcod at that price. You know, now they fish halibut commercially out there. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash me eater i want to tell you about an american-made success story and black buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches black buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use black buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip but they understand the convenience and discretion modern day consumers are looking for black buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love mint straight and wintergreen all proudly made right here in the usa tell them chili the reason i like black buffalo pouches is one they're very discreet and what i mean by that is i can throw one in and almost forget it's there and i prefer the mint pouches so if you're 21 or older consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more you can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives 
for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it. It is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Did you notice any of the, uh, did you see any of those big, the big antler piles with the, the um, skins and stuff? That there was holes that the Arctic, or either the Arctic or the Red Fox had dug underneath the piles. So essentially just had a little, little den, little den. And they just like, you know, probably just sit there and just like take a little snack from the roof and just take a nap and just wake up and just like eat from underneath. Yeah. Just like the drip. And the stuff is frozen. Everything's frozen so rock hard. They must just rasp that stuff off. I don't know that I'll ever, I, I would be shocked if when I'm like dying, okay. On K2. Yeah. I've been telling people lately, I don't want to get into this too long. I just want to point out, if, if, like at whatever age my kids are old enough where if I died a tragic death, it wouldn't screw them up psychologically. How old is that? Like, how old do you got to be, how old do your kids need to be that you dying tragically has a greatly reduced chance of screwing them up psychologically? 18? Yeah, adults. Adults. So, I got a one-month-old right now, and I'm 41. So, at age 60, roughly, you're going to start. At age 60, I'm going to go die on K2. So when I'm laying there dying, if you if I'm laying there dying as a man who's been to Nunavak Island twice, I'll be shocked. Mike's going back. I'll go back. I'll put it in. Why not? <laughs> I I I enjoyed my time there. Um I enjoyed my time there. I'm very glad I went there to, to have that experience. It's an animal I've always been curious about. It's a landscape that I'm curious about. I've read a lot about, you know, the Bering Sea in the Arctic. I've been around some areas. Like, I, I'm glad I went. But one, um, you are, you would never overcome outsider status. You know, you're not chupic. You got money. No, but you could marry in, possibly, marry. and if you lived there, I think you'd overcome outsider status. Yeah. You may. Maybe not with everybody. But you're still the white guy. I mean, they said that. There was, there was like, oh, yeah, there used to be a white guy that lived here for yeah, 25 yeah. years. But I don't hold, I don't hold, I'm not, I don't, I'm not even saying that as a negative, man. I totally understand it. Oh, well, everybody's, no, totally, yeah. everybody's like family. I mean, it's literally like one giant family that lives on yeah, an island. Related. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand it. I just don't, I don't, I don't know that I'm dying to go back. 
Well, for the seal or for walrus. I would go back to hunt walrus. I would go back to go. I can't hunt walrus. I would go back to be present for a walrus hunt. I would go back to be present for a seal hunt to witness it. Um, But I'm not going to apply for DX003, the muskox hunt. Not because I didn't like it or that something was wrong with it. It's just like it was was a a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Not legally, but like spiritually or something, it's like a once in a lifetime thing. Now, for me, like if I go down, you know, and, and hunt national forest land, right? All I, when I walk out of there, all I want to do is go back and hunt again. But I didn't get that feeling hunting muskox. Yeah, that's a good point. I felt like, um, in large measure, uh, I felt like an interloper out on the muskox. I, I just felt, yeah, I didn't feel like a, um, I didn't feel like an ecological participant. I felt more like an ecological voyeur. Is that because of the challenge? Yeah, just was. It's not like uh, it's just not a kind of hunting that I'm interested in doing. I mean, I, I'm glad I went. It's not a kind of hunting I'm interested in doing. Well, it's kind of like if you know. I'm gonna go see the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Once you've done it, what are you gonna go back and see it again? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, did. you really know, yeah, right. But yeah, but it feels like that. But um, but most things like a lot of hunting doesn't feel like that to me. You know, like I'm dying to get back out in the Brooks Range and hunt moose. Well, because because that's gonna be a different adventure entirely. You don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of predictable. You know what? That's right. That's right. You know, I mean, if you went back and hunted muskox, it'd be the same yeah. thing. There's no, I mean, the only thing that would be surprising is if you got caught in some nasty weather and got stuck out overnight, you know, in the tundra and had to do some Arctic survival. I mean, that would be. Yeah, which has never happened to our, you know, God. They're cautious. Doing it. Right, exactly. Yeah, because they, they respect the, the land because they know it. And they but there's it. more to it because even with something as small and simple as like the gray squirrel, you're looking forward to your next gray squirrel hunt. Absolutely. I am. Yeah, I think there's no mystery. When those boys go out, when they get a good weather day, they're going out and a muskox is going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, you got 400 musk. There's like 400 muskox out on the island. The island's huge. Like you know, I keep saying island. It's an island. There's no denying it's an island. But you're saying the island's well, it's widest point close to 70 miles. Same size as Long Island, roughly. Okay, so it's an island, but it's giant. Right? But you got 400 muskox out there. There's nowhere to really hide. When they go out, they're going to get a muskox if the weather's good. So it's like, uh, I don't know, man. It'd be like, I guess it's like going to the bar. Like when you're single, there's sort of an adventure to going to the, to the bar that probably doesn't exist going to a house of ill repute. <laughs> you know what's going to happen. It's kind of like buffalo hunting outside of Yellowstone. Yeah. Almost same thing. But they don't. I put in for that tag every year. <laughs> but once I draw it, I don't know if I'm going to... I mean, I put it in for it all the time. But yeah, it's like, they're either there or not. If they're there, you're going to kill one. But they're not hunting for novelty. They're hunting for food. Who? The, the locals on Nunavut. You know? Oh, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about me. Right, right. For them, it's, yeah, it's a subsistence harvest. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking. I'm trying to put into words why sometimes I'll come back from a hunt and all I want to do is go do it again. Like for instance, that hunt we did in the like hunting coos deer. Yeah. When were we down there? Uh, 
December. The beginning of December. All right. Sign me up, man. Yeah. I'm ready to go. I didn't even get a deer. And therein lies the catch. Maybe that's why I want to go. Because there's a level of uncertainty, but it's not like this is a secret because you can go on Alaska Department of Fish and Game's website and go look at success rates. So every year they give out X number of tags. Let's say on a typical year they give out 30 tags. You'll go look and it'll be like, they issued 30 tags, 22 dudes actually showed up. And most years it'd be like 21 killed a muskox. You know? So going into it, you're like, all right, you set aside a week. And the reason you're setting aside a week is you're trying to get a good weather day. We got lucky and had, we, like, we had a day, we, we had a day, we got stuck in Bethel, couldn't even fly, for, it's a little bit complicated, but we couldn't have flown to Bethel, we couldn't have flown out there even that day, couldn't even have flown out there. Definitely could have hunted that day. Had another day when it wasn't good to hunt. Had later. But the day we got there, just so happened we got there, it was a good hunt day. And when those boys loaded up those trailers and those snow machines, there was no doubt what was going to happen that day. We were killing the muskox. Mm-hmm. You know. And, but I don't know, man. Like if I went to my mom's house right now on September 15th, opening day of squirrel, and I call... Mrs. Zeldenrust, and I said, Mrs. Zeldenrust, can I come to hunt squirrels on your place? Not only do I know I'm going to get a squirrel, I'm going to get the daily bag limit of five. It would take an act of God to, for me to not get five. That's enjoyable to me. So is it that? I don't know what it is. I'm going to kill five squirrels. Absolutely. If I'm out of Miles City and we're going to go hunt cottontails, we're going to kill cottontails. I'm going out there next week to fish catfish. We're going to knock the hell out of them. Is it not fun now? Dude, I know we're going to catch catfish. So then what is it? I don't know. It's a mystery. Maybe it's the serenity wasn't there. Yeah. Loud snowmobiles. Yeah. Bumpy yeah. travel. Yeah. Cold. Yeah. No exercise. Maybe you're not in the driver's seat. It might be a guided hunt thing. Because think about it like this. Say you'd gone out there and it wasn't administered. It wasn't that you had to land on, on native land. Okay? And it was just you could just have a pilot who's got a plane on skis. You could fly around. You can't hunt the same day you fly. You flew around, found a herd, put down somewhere a couple miles or a mile away so you're not going to disturb them set up camp, and then out on foot, you'd be like, I'm coming back, dude. That was a blast. You know? It's just the mechanics of the hunt itself. Just, That's yeah. Simplest. How long have we been talking for, Yanni? We're at an hour plus. All right. That's all you guys paid for is one hour. We're going to log out. Um, any concluding thoughts, Mike? Texas is big. <laughs> Mike just wants to clarify just how big Texas is. I wish you best it's of cute. luck. It's best cute, of luck in the uh, muskox draw next oh, year. Yeah, yeah. Have your when you give your concluding thoughts right now. Yeah. Tell us where you're at on doing the muskox draw. Uh, to to be able to take part in it as a, I, well, you know, you bring up some good points and it, no, 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 screw what I said. I'm just talking. I don't know what I'm talking. About. Well, I can't subtract those from my brain. They're already in there. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, like you said, it is a once in a 
a, a one lifetime kind of thing to do. And it'd be nice. Yeah, because I, you know, we took part in it. So I have, you know, the whole operation and stuff. And so it's less of a mystery. So maybe, I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing, but to do it yourself, I think would be kind of cool. I'd like to come, you know, bring my dad yep. and like, you know, be able to share in that experience. It's a great experience. Because it, I mean, it, there's no place that I've been to that's more, I mean, save the, you know, Southern slope of the Brooks Ranch when we were there. Just vast, open, just, it's bleak, but it has its own really like sharp edged beauty to it. And you know, there's something about the landscape that is just so. It's, I mean, like I said, you know, it's like it's another planet, and, yeah. it's, and you'll never see. I mean, you know, that stuff like that doesn't exist in Texas. It has its own topography. As big as it is. As big as it is, it doesn't have that. <laughs> doesn't have Arctic tundra. <laughs> doesn't have snow dunes. <laughs> so to be able to to or or be able to experience that vicariously to bring somebody else there would be pretty cool. You know, having the knowledge of of being there and taking part in their in their community and stuff and just and you know just in a cultural sense being able to see how you know other people live that's what's so great about this job is you get to go to all these different places and experience all these different people and stuff and that's that's rewarding in itself beyond the animal so you're making me feel like a dick now for what i said because everything you're saying is no because i was trying to talk you're shaming me <laughs> on my own podcast. I was trying to speak to just the the the, the just hunt. The, I know, just the hunt. Yeah, culturally, right. I loved it. Okay. Yeah. I, granted, the the hunt is its own kind of beast. It's, no, and, it's and you hit the nail on the head. It was the mechanics of the hunt. Yeah. yeah. We can we can let that one lay rest. I mean, but yeah, being there, dude, eating frozen tomcod dipped yeah. in seal oil. There are a few places. Is this or, your wrap up, or is Mike still doing his wrap up? Um, it, it, you know, because the, you know, right now it's just such it, putting that the chances of actually drawing that tag. I mean, it would be more of just like a yeah, let's see what happens. You know, throw throw on the wall, see if it sticks, and then I would have to like, okay, is you know, if I did draw a tag, okay, is this really going to happen? And then there would be a whole other process of like thinking about that and if I actually pulled the trigger on it. But you know, right now and just like a far off not real place it's like yeah sure it might be kind of cool but definitely not definitely not for the you know the challenge of the hunt for sure yeah yeah i feel like there's few places in the united states of america that are as exotic in both like landscape and culture and activity and animal as what we just experienced like, That's true. Putting all those things together. Where else are you going to go to really like get that far out of your comfort zone across the board like that? Yeah. Not necessarily a comfort zone, but just like what you know about. Like we re- I mean, de- like even at the airport here in Bethel, dudes are talking, you know, some dialect of Eskimo. Like it's the real deal. You are way out here in Eskimo. Country. It was shocking to be with people who are speaking Chupik. Yeah. Like, you know, like, these people are, like, into... James, we, we touched on the Tom Cod in the seal oil. James Whitman's wife really never really hung out with us too much, didn't really eat with us, even as paying clients, like, around the dinner table. When we bossed out that Tom Cod in the she seal oil, she was in it and was like, this, this stuff's the bomb, you know? Yeah, I mean, she had a whole fish before you even got the first bite. Like, you know, like, it's yeah. cool. Yeah, um, it's fun. Would you put in for the tag? Not yet. 
Not yet. Well, um, g- give me your concluding thoughts. I'm very excited to uh, add, I think, species number 10 to my freezer with that 50-pound uh, Oh, we box. didn't talk about the meat. 50-pound box of meat that you so generously rich, shared. Rich, rich, very good meat, but very rich. Yeah. Fatty meat. It's good. We ate some. That's great. The ribs yeah, were good. We ate some ribs that were tasty. We ate pont. No, we ate uh, diaphragm. What else we eat? I think that's this it. This is raw. Raw. Rich, fatty meat. We wound up with easy. We have over 200 pounds of meat. Yeah, My box weighed in at 60-something. 60? So, yeah, so we're each going home with 60 pounds of, you know, untrimmed meat. Bo- no bone. Untrimmed, but bone. Yeah. But you'll probably yield, you know, 40. I got a sack of Tomcod. Me and Corey got a sack of Tomcod, too. It's going to be eating shavings. Tomcod. <laughs> <laughs> so is that, are you, is that your concluding thoughts? It is. Thank Corey, you. concluding I'm thoughts? Out. I had a great time. I mean, uh, the experience, and I agree with everyone, the cultural aspect of it was amazing. I think that the imagery that's going to stick in my mind the rest of my life is like pulling alongside, you know, paralleling the muskox running and looking off the snowmobile thinking, wow, you know, this is like Jurassic Park or something. You know, where's the saber-toothed tiger now? But, you know, that animal's just like gliding on the tundra and, it is wild. See, that animal took him to the ice age. He was right there. Well, I mean, <laughs> Dude, it did me too. I, I, I know I was hacking on the I know I was hacking on the ice age thing, but when I looked at him, I'm like, if I was just sitting here, if you if you said to me, like if I somehow lost my position in time, okay? Like a, you somehow could be confused where you were in the space-time continuum. And you sat me down with my binoculars on that glass and tit. And I looked out, I'd be like, well, there's a mammoth. Down there is what I would think. I had talked about this a couple of times out there. Is the when I first saw muskox was the first time I went caribou hunting, and we drove up to hunt caribou. Like didn't hire, we just like did it with a canoe and a truck, and it was the first time I'd ever hunted in Alaska, and it was way it was fifteen years ago. I knew that there was a thing called a muskox that existed, but I couldn't have told you if it existed there still or not or where. I knew it was just like, I knew it was a creature. Right. And all of a sudden, we're looking at something through our binoculars. You know? It was like looking across some, talk about confusion in space-time continuum. It really was like, I wasn't like clear what I was looking at. I could be like, oh, there's a muskox. But I'm like, but what is a muskox? Like, where are they right now as a species? Right. Am I, did I, am I seeing the last one? You know? Like, what am I looking at? It's just there's not a lot of awareness about that animal. An Ice Age remnant. Because it's an Ice Age remnant. <laughs> it's like the Norway rat. Corey. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, overall, a beautiful trip. Really? Yeah. Those old ice shanties just sitting on the edge of the Bering Sea like that. More sunrises. Sunsets were amazing. I think we got lucky with the weather. Like, yeah, really, we had five days straight of, you know, partly cloudy to sunny days. You had to have liked watching me jack those tomcat up through that hole in the ice. Oh yeah, that was inspiring for you, probably. I think making the hole was <laughs> the best. <laughs> I don't know, man. It wore out. It wore a hole through my beaver mitten, man. It did. Yeah, 
wore a hole through my beaver mitt. It's worked for those holes. Four hours. Four hours of hole pounding. All right, Yanni's giving me the old wrap it up. Thanks for listening. Say say thanks for listening in Latvian and I'll shut up. Paldies, ka jūs klausieties. Labanakti. All right, signing out, Meteor Podcast. Tune in next time. Hey, listen up. This sounds like an advertisement, but it's not. It's, 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 it's different than an ad. I need you guys and gals that listen to go check out the complete guide to hunting, butchering, and cooking wild game, which is written by myself and some people from the Meat Eater team and a collection of the best hunters from around the country. It's a two-volume set. Volume one, big game. It's coming out in August. Volume 2 Small Game comes out in December. Um, Again, it's called The Complete Guide to Hunting, Butchering, and Cooking Wild Game. It totals about 750 pages of content dealing with gear, tags, hunting basics, advanced hunting strategies, field butchering, recipes, everything you need to know to be a better hunter or to get started in hunting if you haven't done it before. If I had had this book when I was a kid, it would have changed my life. It's going to change yours. I'm not joking. You can pre-order now. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Target, Powell's, Walmart, wherever books are sold. It's out there. It's beautiful. It's huge. It's two volumes. Do yourself a favor. Do me a favor. Give this book a look. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.